following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning. I am glad that you joined us. If you are just joining us, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. And we're going to uh, be spending the next seven weeks on this topic of marriage, sitting down in this text. Some of you are probably already getting uncomfortable, and maybe rightly so. Um, Why are we talking about marriage? Well, first, because marriage is hard, and we've got a lot of folks who are married, and they need some help, right? And honestly, I just ain't got the time for all the pre-marriage counseling and all the marriage counseling, so I figured a sermon series is a little easier on me, right? Now, I've been married for 15 years in May, so I know how hard it can be. Um, My wife knows how hard it can be. She's been married to me for 15 years. I've read, um, I just jumped up on my shelf this morning uh, to look and uh, see how many books on marriage I've read. Uh, I've read over 40 books on marriage, and most of them uh, give some decent tips and tricks on some small ways to improve your marriage, but they still fall short on really giving us the resources we need to grow and change and to create thriving marriages. And so we want to help. That's why we're one of the reasons we're here today. Second, because uh, marriage actually isn't going away. Uh, Marriage isn't like a VCR. You remember those? (laughs) Right? We invented them and then we invented something better later, right? So we threw away the VCR Marriage isn't something that human beings came up with, right? And then we're, we can kind of evolve out of it now, and now there's some other way of living that's better. No, God gave us marriage. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at Genesis 1 during the series, or Genesis 2, and, and look at the series. It's a God-given, marriage is, marriage is a God-given institution, and therefore no matter how our culture's opinion will shift regarding marriage, it's not going anywhere, And since it's not going anywhere, and many of us will be married or want to be married someday, or maybe have been married, we need to take a closer look at it before we write it off and try to move on from it. And third, lastly, to say it bluntly, most of us don't have a biblical understanding of marriage. That's to say that our views of marriage have been shaped more by our experiences than by the word of God. That's a big problem. Your experience, whether your parents were married and happy and committed, whether they bounced around between different people, where they split up, at what age they split up, your experience, if you've been divorced, if you've been hurt in relationships, many times your experiences will actually have a controlling influence on the way that you view marriage and it, it won't be a biblical wor- worldview. Right? And that's a big problem because what typically happens when you're, when you're shaped by something other than God and other than God's word, you either idolize it or demonize it. What I mean by that is some of us, we've had broken relationships and broken marriages and, our, and, our, and we grew up in a, in a split home. And so we just idolize the idea of marriage for a lifetime. Like, that will save me. Once I find that person that loves me and accepts me and we can be together forever, that will, that's what my life is all about. And then I can have my kids and the family and the house and inside these walls, the kingdom will come. 
right? We idolize it. Then we get into marriage and realize, whoa, what happened, right? Or we demonize it. I grew up in a broken home. You know, a man's sexual drive isn't built for marriage. We got to do something different, do something on the side, do something different. And so we can just demonize marriage and say marriage is an outdated institution. Marriage is just a piece of paper. Marriage is something man created in the late Bronze Age and it's just an outdated institution. Well, then we demonize and then we spend our whole life trying to avoid something that God has given to us, many of us, for our, for our good. So our experiences have a way of distorting how we view marriage. And it's my prayer that through this series, the next seven weeks, God would give us some clarity from his word on this issue. And that's where we're going this morning. And I've got a lot of work to do. So just what is the purpose of marriage? Well, I'm going to begin to answer that question from our text this morning, but just be aware, my disclaimer, this is a seven-week series. What I'm going to do today is barely an introduction. I'm just going to begin to scratch the surface on marriage. Now, you've probably already noticed that our reading was from Ephesians chapter 5. Well, it is never a good idea to just jump into one of the later chapters of a letter. Imagine someone sends you a letter. Ephesians was a letter. It was a circular letter sent by the Apostle Paul. Imagine getting a letter and just skipping to the back few paragraphs and just starting there, right? In essence, that's what we're doing this morning, right? And by doing that, we're going to miss the context of the whole letter. We're going to miss the supporting ideas that the later material was um, predicated on. And this is especially true for the book of a, we call it a book. It is a book now because it's a book in our Bible, but it was really a letter, an epistle. That's what epistle means, letter, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a group, bunch of missional communities where they would read it and they would pass it to the next missional community spread around Asia Minor. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a struggling church. I'm going to say a church just like us, full of people who have been changed by God, and yet deeply struggle with doubts. Some of the people in the church were not even Christians. They were here checking things out like some of you are this morning, right? And some of the Christians were struggling with addictions, with fear, with doubt, and of course, obviously, with difficulties in their marriages. And one of the unique things that Paul did when writing this letter was to spend the first three chapters with nothing but, here's a big word for you, indicatives. That means he spent the first half of his letter, and this is what an indicative is, telling them all the things God had already done for them. Things that Jesus had done for them, all right? That's what an indicative is. It's nothing they are supposed to do. It's something that was done for them. Things that Jesus did that changed everything for them. He didn't give them, here's the other type of language or type of uh, writing he has here. He gave them all indicatives. He didn't give them any imperatives. Imperatives are the thing, they're the commands. They're the things that Paul writes to us or Paul, we read in the scripture says, go and do this, behave this way. So the apostle spends the first half of the book only telling us things Christ has done. And then he starts, on top of this, he starts building a foundation of a, a, or a house of imperatives. Now, because of what Christ has done for you, now go do this. Now, why did he do that? 
He wanted the readers to see a clear distinction between what Jesus had done for them, that's the gospel, that's the good news, and what they are to do. That could be the implications of the gospel or the outworkings of the gospel, but those two things are completely different. Why? Because Christianity is not something you behave your way into. I've asked people before, are you a Christian? They say, I'm trying. No. If you are a Christian, it is because of God's work, not yours. And when you understand that and you believe it deep in your heart, it makes a tremendous change in how you live and how you experience God. You are more buoyant. You can keep your head, no matter what circumstances are coming in your life, you can keep your head above water. You are more joyful. You have a greater emotional resiliency. And I want you to see all of those traits are important to a great marriage. So before we really drill down in marriage and pull out some of the stuff that Paul's telling us, I want to do something really quick. I want to take a quick look at some of these indicatives of the gospel that Paul has offered us in the earlier chapter. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Ephesians 1. Now, six years ago, six and a half years ago, I preached an entire sermon series on the book of Ephesians. So if something strikes your fancy, you can go back and listen to those old sermons. I will apologize for them, by the way. Um, I was six years younger, seven years younger. The church was in a different place. I was a little more feisty back then. <clears throat> but they're decent, so you can go listen to them. We're going to start in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 3. I just want to show you some of the things that Paul wants us to know that God has done for us before he talks about marriage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is like a worship hymn. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So Paul is already pretty stoked here because he's saying Christians have been blessed with everything they need spiritually through Jesus. Verse four, even as he, uh-oh, chose us in him, in Christ, look, before the foundation of the world. This is something kind of crazy. Paul is worshiping because God chose us before he made the earth. I mean, God, that means God chose you by name before he created the world. Whoa, keep reading. See, he didn't, it's not you choosing Jesus that got you in here. It was God choosing you. Keep reading even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look, in love, he, this is a word a lot of people don't like, but it's in the Bible. He predestined us for adoption. That means God, before he created the world, said, I'm going to adopt these people, you by name. If you put your faith in Christ, According to what? According to their choice? According to their will? According to their, de their desires? Absolutely not. According to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace that we would have nothing to, to say. We didn't do anything. Christ did everything. With which he has what? Blessed us in the beloved 
that we are now the beloved in him, Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now look what's going on here. If you could read this in the Greek, you would see something fascinating. This is, I think the word, I think it is a 203 word sentence. Okay, there is no punctuation in this sentence, right? The apostle is speaking like a lover. My wife, we, I'm cleaning out the basement this, this week. I had a great weekend cleaning out the basement. And I found a box of old love letters from the dating days. It was, you know, first off, it was good. Made my wife feel really good, right? Lots of goo-goo-ga-ga stuff in there, right? But then it also kind of, she gave me the look like, what's wrong with you now, you know? <laughs> right, I kind of got that sense. I was like, yeah. Now listen, she showed me one of them and it's just like two, both front and back, like every place on the letter you could write was written something, right? That's what kind of Paul's writing to the church. And he's so overwhelmed with what God has done for them in Christ. He's just kind of blurting it out. No punctuation, 203 run on, 203 word run on sentence. All right. Now, so he tells us here that this is what Jesus has done for us. Hear this. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing chose us to make us holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, blessed us in the beloved, redeemed us through his blood, forgave us our sins, lavished his grace upon us. Okay, now what we should say after hearing that and being overwhelmed, why did he do that? Why? Why did God all do do all of this? What was the ultimate purpose for saving us and giving us so much through his grace. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that's in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. God has a plan that is in full effect right now. He is renewing and reuniting all things in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. He is in the process of bringing all things back into line with the way he created them. See, Jesus, when he was resurrected, was the firstborn of the new creation. And one day, God is going to totally renew this planet, removing all the traces of sin. He's bringing heaven down and the earth up. And he's going to renew all things. And here's the, here's the, here's the reality. God is renewing all things. He's also doing that with us. If you are a Christian, God is in the process right now of recreating you. But what does this process of recreation look like? Well, first, obviously, we see he's doing all of creation. He's renewing all things from verse 10. Secondly, this is kind of surprising. You go to, if you go to Ephesians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 8, he's using the church to make it known. Nobody else has this message of renewal and re- restoration. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is, look, the plan of the mystery 
hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is what the apostle's saying. All through the Old Testament, all through, before, you know, since the beginning of man, up until Jesus, people were bumping around, stumbling, trying to figure out what this world's about, who is God, what's life about. But when God became man in Jesus Christ, he revealed to us a mystery that's been hidden for ages. And now we know the mystery. God's renewing and restoring all things through Jesus. We know where things are headed. Now the church is the mouthpiece of that message. The church declares this message of restoration. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. Okay, fourth, or third, so that's two. God's using the church to make this known. Three, look at chapter three, verses 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, look, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God here's the third thing Paul's trying to show us renewal the renewal of all things it goes internal first it renews us from the heart. It renews us in our spirit before it re renews all things externally. Okay, so first, he's renewing all things. Secondly, he's using the church to proclaim it and to tell you how, how to get it. Third, this change happens internally before it becomes external. And lastly, four, look at chapter four, verses 13 through 15. Until, so he, he talks about giving the, my job is to equip you for the work of ministry. That's my job, right? And then verse 13, what, how long do I keep doing my job? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, look, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head Christ. So here's the goal of it, guys. The renewal and the restoration of all things, and it happens internally first. What happens internally? God is making us into the image of Jesus. That's what he's doing right now. God is doing all of this right now, kind of under our noses, and he has wonderfully written us into this story of redemption. And all of this work of recreation and renewal is going on, and most of us live our lives completely unaware of it. And the book of Ephesians here is meant to give us new eyes to see what's really going on. As Christians, this is how we glorify God. This is our purpose in life. To know God, to understand and experience his grace, to be a part of his church that is on mission to renew creation and to be molded and shaped more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now that's discipleship in a nutshell, but this is our goal as a church. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. If you are a Christian, 
God is at work in you right now. Internally, in your heart and in your soul, and his purpose for you is for you to grow up into the likeness and character of Jesus. Think about it. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, kind, not boastful, not envious, not arrogant or rude. That's God's will for you. That's what God's doing in you right now. Think about Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, loving joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, with self-control. See, God has put his spirit in you, Christian, to make you into that type of person. And now, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is about to tell us that marriage is powerful in this system of redemption, in this story of renewal and restoration, God has given us marriage to, to serve a specific function. Marriage is meant to play a huge part for most of us in God's plan and purpose to renew us into the image of Jesus. Now this is where the rubber meets the road. God can use many things to make us into the image and likeness of Jesus, but one of his strongest tools is marriage. Marriage is one of his sharpest blades. It is meant to be a major instrument to reshape your heart from the inside out and reform your life from the ground up. Marriage has this kind of power. We see all this right here in our text. We're going to be at Ephesians chapter 5. I'm starting at verse 21. I know many of us, you might have thought, why did he start in 21? Verse 21 is, again, a part of a run-on sentence of what went before it. And it starts like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is a linking sentence. It's supposed to link us up to what, everything that Paul talked about before. And it's that all those, remember those indicatives I talked about? This is what Jesus has done for us. Paul's trying to link our obedience, our behavior, our life inside of a marriage to gospel-rich theology. Specifically in this text, it says, follow the Spirit, obey the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. And he's connecting, he's saying, if you're led by the Spirit, this is what that looks like. He's saying, here's what it looks like to live as a Christian. Here's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus in your everyday life. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let me break that down for us a little bit. The word submit very few of us in here like that. I have never seen anybody with it tattooed on them. You know, submission, right? I've never seen it. We don't, we're Americans. We hate that word. But the word submit was a military word. It was used of giving up your rights. You join the military, you give up your rights. You don't get to choose your haircut. You don't get to choose what you wear. You don't get to choose what you eat, when you eat, how you eat. You give up your rights. That's what it means to submit. Paul here applies that to the Christian. He says the Christian who follows the Spirit gives up their rights. 
and submits not to God primarily first, or not right in this situation, submits to who? Submits to one another. Puts their rights under another human being. Out of, and this is specifically submits to another Christian, out of fear or reverence, that means fear, awe, love, respect of Jesus. That means because of your relationship with Christ, you are now able to submit to another person. This is putting the good of another person above and ahead of your own. Now, I want you to see that this is what makes a Christian marriage so hard. It's submission. It's putting aside my needs and doing everything in my power to meet the needs of my spouse. I also want you to see that this, is, this idea of marriage, this mutual submissive marriage, is completely contrary to what our culture says about marriage. Now, historically, there have been two predominant views on marriage. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to label these the ancient view of marriage and the modern view of marriage. In the ancient view, you've never seen this before, more than likely, but you've watched movies where it's happened, okay? In the ancient view, marriage is a social contract. Marriage serves a social function. It was mainly an economic and social decision. Like people... In this worldview, nobody married for love, right? You married because that guy had more land and dad said, we want that land. And so dad said, "Go, marry. I'm going to marry my family into that family so we can have more land. It was an economic decision, right? To marry for love was crazy because you're sacrificing your commitment. You're sacrificing your prosperity down the road. You marry for position and status. Many times these were arranged marriages, now, it's interesting, though, in these marriages, and some cultures still practice these, in these marriages, divorce is never an option. Why? There's high commitment. We put the, the lifestyle of the family, we put the kids at the center, we want to create a safe environment for the raising of children, so divorce is not an option, and, but, uh, hey, what am I sacrificing? I'm not really that into you most of the time. Right? This is good for the family, it's good for the kids, it's good for society as a whole. I have a high commitment marriage, but very kind of low passion, low, low maybe self-fulfillment in that area. Now that's the old dynastic view. That's the old ancient view of marriage. Now what's the new modern view? The new modern view of marriage is marriage is the complete opposite. Marriage is meant to serve a personal romance and passion function. Marriage is to make me feel loved. The main purpose of marriage in the modern view is to make me constantly, perpetually feel valued, loved, cherished. This idea, you hear all kinds of things about this idea. This idea is all everywhere in our culture. The idea is like, I, I fell in love with that person, right? I just, what? It just happened to me, just jumped on me out of nowhere, right? I didn't, I didn't have any control over it. My emotions just took control of my body. Right? That person makes me feel loved and accepted, and so now I do what my heart says. Now, in this mentality, obviously, divorce is absolutely necessary because our changing emotions, right? They're like the tides, changing of the tides. And we can fall in love, and we can fall out of love, 
and we can fall back in love with somebody else constantly. And so we need, we need an escape clause, right? We need the ability to say, you know what, you're not really doing it for me anymore, and I can, so I can move on to whatever I'm, I'm into at the moment. In this view, people always say things like, love shouldn't be this hard. Now, I know we said that. There's lots of books out there that say that. That's an ignorant statement, right? It, everything worthwhile is hard, right? Can you imagine a NFL player going, tackling shouldn't be this hard, <laughs> right? Anything that requires high skill, high effort, and has high reward is hard, now, at the foundation, here's what's unique. At the foundation, both of these views of marriage are the same. They are both saying, the purpose of marriage is to serve me. Marriage is primarily about meeting my needs. Either my needs to be taken care of financially so I'll, I'll marry, even though I'm not really into the person, I'll marry uh, to get taken care of. Or my needs to feel loved and valued and accepted. Now in either paradigm, your goal is to find a spouse who can serve your needs. Now, obviously they must have certain traits that you find useful. Either practical needs or romantic ones. Simply they need either a bank account or beauty. That's Minimalistic, but choose one is what we say. Now, what's wrong with these views? Well, first, primarily here, they're both self-centered. Me and my needs are at the center. They are, in essence, trying to use another person to meet my needs. And another thing wrong with these views is that they both see passion and lifelong commitment as mutually exclusive. Choose passion, and you're never gonna get commitment with that one. You never know, because the feelings come and go. Or choose lifelong commitment and just suck it up, man. You're gonna be bored, but hey, the kid's got a, good, a nice place to be raised in, right? Now, they see these things as mutually exclusive. They say, choose one. Now, obviously, nobody really wants to do that. We weren't made to choose between love and commitment or passion and permanence. But, and as we see in our text, we're going to learn this, that God says that marriage is meant to be a lifelong commitment and a lifelong passion. We're to pursue passion and we're per to pursue emotions and we're to pursue going deeper and deeper with, in love with our spouse, but we're also called to do that over, our long, over the long haul through seasons of depression, through seasons of doubt, through seasons of boredom, through seasons of being overrun by children, forgetting that your spouse even exists until one of their functions has not been fulfilled. Where's dinner? Oh, my wife. Oh, she's passed out on the couch. She's been, the children are jumping on top of her. I didn't realize I had wife till my dinner was not made. All right? 
But if you want this type of marriage, if you want a lifelong commitment and a lifelong pursuit of passion, that literally at the age of 80, you're more in love with your spouse than you were when you got married at 20 or 25. If you want this type of marriage, you have to go after it God's way. You can't expect to get God's kind of marriage if you go after it in your own way. And sadly, that's what many of us have done. Many of us have settled for either a safe and boring marriage where our financial needs are met and we're trying to raise the kids and do right by them, or we've bounced around from marriage to marriage, from partner to partner, looking for someone to keep my emotional needs met. Keep me feeling valued. Keep me feeling loved. Keep telling me how good I am. And what, you know what? And our, our culture says that's a problem. And our culture offers the cure that's actually worse than the disease. Our culture says, yeah, yeah, you can't have both, just move in together. You get the best of both worlds. It helps you both out financially, and yet when things fizzle out, when things get too difficult, when your emotional needs aren't being met, just move on. It's easy, it's simple. Nobody's hurt. The cure here is worse than the disease. Statistically, the, this doesn't work. Statistically, those that live together before marriage are much more likely to get divorced. So cohabitating actually increases your risk for divorce. God's way is much better. Listen, it's the way to lifelong commitment and lifelong passion. So here's our purpose statement that we're going to build this series on. The purpose of marriage is not to fulfill me socially or to fulfill me emotionally. The purpose of marriage is to serve your spouse with a vision of their future glory. Now, I got that from Tim Keller. I want to read it the last part one time. The purpose of marriage is to serve your spouse with a vision of their future glory. Do you remember the story? Do you remember what we're caught up in? Do you remember what Paul's been doing through Ephesians? The whole point of all things is to unite all things into Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That means God is at work right now in you and in your spouse, making you both into something glorious. You are being formed into the image of Jesus. And the purpose of marriage, listen, is to say, I see something glorious that God is doing in you and I want to be a part of it. I can see when I look at you and I can see where you've come from and where you are and where God is taking you. I see God is at work in you and he's making you into something unique and special and beautiful in Christ. And I want to be a part of that process. I want to get in there and help you get where God's taking you. The purpose of marriage is to say, I see something glorious that God is doing in you, and I want to be a part of it. Now, married people, can you say that? 
can you even see what God is doing in your spouse? No. I'll tell you why in a minute. But you, you need to ask God to give you a biblical vision of your spouse. What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in my husband? How are you at work? How can you use me towards that purpose? See, this view radically changes a person's approach to marriage. I don't look at my spouse and say, how can you be useful to me? I look at them and say, how can I be useful to what God is doing in you? And Jesus says, this is where we give up our life to find our life. This is where Jesus and John, on the night, one of the last times he got together with his disciples, he was the most powerful, dominant man in the room. He had God's spirit in him. He had all things from God. He had all the revelation of God. And what did he do? He took off his robe and put a towel on and he washed his apostles' feet. He washed, he says, the greatest among you serves. I'm here to serve you. Now you go and do likewise. Jesus says, lose your life, find it. Servants are the greatest. That means my goal as a husband is my wife's future glory. Verse 27 in Ephesians says this. I'm going to just read it. Verse 25 first. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. That's what it's talking about. Make her into the image of Christ, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might, look, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Paul's saying here that someday I will stand before God and I will have to offer my wife back to the God who gave her to me. And it is my job as a Christian husband to lead and love my wife in such a way that on the day we stand before God, I present her back to God better than when he gave her to me. Men, we are responsible for that. He talks about washing with water of the word. He talks about laying our life down like Christ did for us. He talks about loving her with that type of love. A redemptive love, a sanctifying love, a love that loves her more into the image of Christ. A discipleship love. Now, this is the power of a Christian marriage. This is why marriage can be so powerful if you understand the indicatives, if you understand the gospel. Listen, two people, two Christians, submitting to one another, submitting to Jesus, both working for the other's spiritual good. That marriage is going to be awesome. When two people are both submitting themselves to Jesus and serving each other and thinking, how can I make the other one happy? Can I, how can I love the other one into this image of Christ? It creates a warm, loving, and safe place to grow up into Christ-likeness. It's a marriage that flourishes. 
But this also shows us why those types of marriages are so rare. Why so many marriages fail to cultivate this type of self-sacrificial love for the other. Paul is saying, <laughs> verse 21, right away, before we get into marriage, real detailed marriage issues, Paul says, follow the Spirit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's he getting at? He's saying, in order for you to have a good, God-glorifying marriage, you must first kill your self-centeredness by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is counterintuitive. Nearly every marriage counseling appointment that I have begins with one spouse being fed up with the behavior of the other spouse. Maybe he's being lazy, maybe he's doing something, and then she gets really angry and really mad. And anytime you try to say, what's going on with your anger? He's a lazy turd. Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> Did you hear me? What are you, why, eyes need to be there. Don't ask me. What's going on? Self-centeredness blinds us to our own problems and makes the other person, it just gives us laser focus on the other person. Like binocular, like bring it up and make it really big, right? And we walk around with binoculars on our spouse and we know how they're sinning against God. We know how they're sinning against us. We know everything they need to, need to do to be right. And if they would just do it, our marriage would be so much better. It's so easy. It's so clear to me what's wrong with our marriage. And I'm the pastor sitting there going, oh, I see the problem too. <laughs> it's your self-centeredness. Both of you. Your victimhood has become more important to you than is bigger to you. You're more aware of the ways you've been taken advantage of. You've been hurt. You've been offended. You've been victimized by them. That's bigger to you than your own sinfulness. Than your own ways you've contributed to the brokenness in the marriage. See, we think the other person's problems are what's ruining our marriage. God says, no. It's your self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the cancer that's ruining your life. That's ruining your soul. That's ruining your marriage. Your problem is you. You worship you. You think about you too much. You worry about you too much. You live like you are the center of the universe. And if everyone in the house just did what you wanted, this would, be, this would just go swimmingly. <laughs> now, if that's true, but, but here, here's the deal. Both of you are doing that. And if that's true, it's easy to see why marriage is so difficult. 
and love is so hard. We are bent in on ourself and self-centered and we are trying to, we're all trying to put our needs at the center to get what we want. Think about this. Two people who are both trying to use the other person to get their own needs met, what could go wrong in that scenario? Right? You're like tying two cat's tails together there. Let's see what happens. Now, I guarantee you, I promise, at the root of any marriage issue you have right now is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the problem. And this is what makes Christian marriage unique and powerful. Both people have had the root of their self-centeredness severed and now they make it their effort, their jo- because of what Christ has done for them, they now submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They are now about serving the other and not serving their self. Now what does that mean? That means our relationship with Christ has foundationally changed the way we relate to our spouse. Think about it. When a person comes to Christ, they are immediately confronted with two things. First, they're worse than they thought. That's what the gospel tells us. We're all sinners who cannot save ourselves, and we're more pervasive of a sinner than we ever thought possible. Our mind, our heart, our will, everything has been set against God. We're worse than we thought. Jesus reveals to us that we are self-centered sinners who have sinned and thought word and deed in more ways than we're ever aware of. Now that realization humbles the Christian. Oh, I got issues. Ooh, I got heart problems. Ooh, I got sins in my heart. It makes me gun shy, right? I used to point out everybody else's problems. Now I put them away and go, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a bad guy too. I make these mistakes too. But then listen, that's the first thing we learned. We're worse than we thought. But in the gospel, we also learned that in spite of our sin and in spite of our self-centeredness, God loved us anyway. Not just in some kind of emotional, feel-good way, He sent Jesus and came to love us by laying down his life for us. And when we believe both of those things together, I'm worse than I thought, but I'm more loved than I ever imagined. When we believe both of those things, it releases us from the chains of our own self-centeredness. I don't need to use my wife. The Father has met my needs in Christ. Because of the truth of the gospel, listen, this is, if two people in a Christian marriage can come to this realization, your marriage would be changed. This is just one thing. Because of the truth of the gospel, if you could come to see that your own selfishness is the greatest problem in the marriage, Do you see the trick that happens there? If husband and wife both go, I'm the biggest idiot here. I'm the idiot who needs the gospel. I'm the one who's not getting it. I'm the one with heart problems. I'm the one bringing my selfishness into the marriage that's messing things up. What can I do, right? 
If both people are out there, if both people are having that mentality, it's going to create a, a marriage that's just, that's, that flourishes, that's ripe for flourishing. And what this does, it, it's almost unbelievable. Two Christians who believe these two simple things about themselves, I'm worse than I thought possible, but more loved and accepted in Christ than I could ever imagine, I'm a worse sinner than my spouse, and yet, because I know my own, I really, I, I, my own sin is what bothers me the most, right? And yet, I'm fully loved by God anyways because of Jesus. This is the power of a Christian marriage. It goes to war with our self-centeredness. And as we believe the gospel, it genuinely frees us to love and serve the other. Let me ask you this morning. Are you doing this? Is this the current reality of your marriage? Single people, are you practicing this? Every brother or sister in Christ that's in your life is an opportunity to, to practice this? Self-sacrifice? Serving the other, putting somebody else's needs above my own. Again, in the words of C.S. Lewis, this is not thinking less of myself, right? Oh, I'm just an idiot, right? It's not that. It's thinking of myself less. That's the freedom, self-forgetfulness, looking at the needs of those around me, loving and serving them because of what Christ has done for me. Now listen, Anybody can do this in spurts. Anybody can read a devotion and go, I got it today. <sighs> the power of marriage is it keeps two people together in a safe place where neither one of them is going to go outside of the marriage, keeps them together, and it keeps them working on this, killing their self-centeredness, over and over and over and over. And the only, here's the deal, the only way you can do this in a consistent manner over a lifetime is if you are constantly taking the truths of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you into your mind, into your prayers, into your heart by faith. You can't just wake up in the morning and say, be better today. Be a good husband, be a good wife. You aren't going to grow up into the image of Jesus by focusing more on you. You're going to grow into the likeness of Jesus by focusing on him. What has he done for me? He's given me everything in Christ, all the spiritual blessings. Go back to the first half of this sermon. Listen to the whole thing again if you need to. Look what he's done for me. I am rich in Christ. I don't need to live like I'm poor. What, what, what does that mean? When you're poor on love, when you feel like your love tank is not met, right? You get demanding. You get controlling. You get impulsive. You go find somebody to make you feel loved in the moment. Why? Because you're broke. You're spiritually bankrupt. You got no money in the bank. But when Christ fills you with the riches of Christ, you've got money in the bank to guess what? Make deposits in other people, in your spouse, in your Christian brother or sister. 
That comes by constantly taking myself back to the gospel and reminding myself, what has Christ already done for me? Now, this meal that we get to eat together, it's a meal that reminds us of this. Like, Jesus, you saw that in the passage that we said today. Men, how are we supposed to love our wife? Listen, women, I, I love you. Everybody gets hung up on wives submit to their husbands, right? Lots of guys have done bad stuff with that. I'm sorry, it's offensive, it's wrong. But listen, submit to your husband is not the hardest part in this passage, right? Submit to your husband, that's not the hardest part. The hardest part is husbands, love your wife, you know, like Christ loves the church. Well, how do you do that? Laid his life down for her, right? In my mind, any husband that's even remotely doing that, any woman's like, I submit. <laughs> Willingly, joyfully. Why? Because that's the way he loves us into the kingdom. We submit to Jesus because he's so good to us. And this meal, that's what it's about this morning. We come and we're fed with the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and we're reminded what, how he poured himself out for us. The only reason we're in the kingdom is because of Jesus laying his life down for us. And when I feast on that, I can lay myself down for others. Father, there's some in here that have never heard the gospel before. And I pray that you would change their heart right now. That you, before the foundation of the world, predestined them to be here today. You chose them in Christ to hear the gospel this morning. And I pray they would respond by trusting in you, believing in that. And for those of us Christians in here who we still see the vine of self-centeredness growing in our own hearts and it's tangled us up and it's choking out the passion of our marriage. It's choking out the commitment of our marriage. It's choking out the vitality of our marriage. Would you grant us repentance now? And we would, could we once again see that, yep, yeah, we're worse than we thought, but we are more loved we could ever imagine. Jesus knew all of this about us before going to the cross, before choosing us. And that gives us great hope and thankfulness. Father, as we come to the table, we do confess our sins, we repent of our sins, and we're thankful that we offer up our grubby, dirty, sinful hands, and you put the sinless, perfect body of Christ in it. We accept it. We accept the grace you give us. We accept the gift of sonship and the gift of being your daughter, the gift of grace. We don't deserve it, but we accept it. We are the beloved. Thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.